Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with sprint coach and head coach at Speedworks, Jonas Dodu. This episode of the Pacing Performance Podcast is sponsored by SimplyFaster.com and that's spelled S-I-M-P-L-I Faster.com. So alongside the free lap timing systems, SimplyFaster.com currently holds the eccentric K-Box. So if you haven't heard of the K-Box, it's a new product that uses flywheel technology to allow higher velocity eccentric overload. So I saw the K-Box for the first time when Mike Young from the US brought a couple over for one of his workshops in Gloucester. So off the back of that, I was really keen to use one and I actually got my hands on one and was able to spend a couple of hours playing around with lots of different exercises and getting used to the K-Box. So from personal experience, getting out of the bottom of the squat, powering up and having the K-Box pull you through the floor on the way down is absolutely incredible. So basically, the harder you go on the concentric portion of the lift, the more it's going to give you on the eccentric. So if you're going to go for it, you're going to get pulled through the floor. At simplyfaster.com, there's also a great blog from Frederick, who is one of the co-owners of Eccentric, so you can learn more about the K-Box there. So if you are interested in getting a K-Box, get to simplyfaster.com, so that's S-I-M-P-L-I, faster.com, and get a K-Box for yourself. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is also sponsored by Vald Performance, creators of the Nordboard. So if you haven't heard of the Nordboard already, don't worry, I'll explain, it's really, really simple. The Nordboard is a really fast and accurate system for monitoring hamstring strength. So as practitioners, we can do very little about athlete age and previous hamstring injury, but what we can do something about is our athlete's eccentric strength, and that's where the Nordboard fits in really nicely. It isn't going to get your athlete's hamstrings bulletproof, but what it is going to do is give you the right information so you can make the right decisions at the right time. So the Nordboard isn't available until December 2015, but if you do want any more information, you can go over to Vald Performance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com, or email info at valdperformance.com. Welcome to episode 55 of the Pace Performance Podcast. So today we have Jonas Dodu on the phone. So Jonas came on a couple of months ago and I sent him the MP3 over to have a little listen and he assured me that he could do a better job. So we've just been trying to hook up for the, for the last couple of months with world championships, uh, a new baby, things getting in the way. So we, we haven't been able to do it sooner, but so glad we got Jonas on finally. Um, it's a really great episode. So we go through um, action typing, where he talks extensively about his experience in grouping athletes together to, uh, to get to know what they need. We talk about uh, profiling of speed, so coach's eye versus actual sports science. And towards the end, we discuss all the work that Jonas is doing uh, with his workshop and his consultancy. So I'm going to keep this intro nice and short because we've got another episode, one of the technology segment with Marco Altini. So I'll pass over to Marco. This is part two of his three-part series on heart rate variability. So massive thanks to Marco. And you can catch all his stuff at hrv4training.com. Hi Rob, thanks for having me again on your podcast today. In the last episode, I've introduced HRV, so different ways to capture variations in consecutive heartbeats. And we've seen that HRV is often measured using a time domain feature called RMSSD as a measure of parasympathetic activity, and that we can use this feature to understand how physiologically rested we are and how much different stressors like training are affecting our body. This podcast is about interpreting HRV data, and I want to start first by spending a few seconds talking about what factors are consistently affecting HRV. And we have a long list starting from uh, body posture uh, when taking the measurement, respiration typically with deeper breathing rates being associated to higher HRV, age with HRV reducing as we age, genetic factors, gender, time of the day, so basically the circadian rhythm, physical exercise, psychological stress, 
of course chronic health conditions so these are the main factors um, and how can we get something useful out of HRV measurements if they are affected by so many factors well we do so in two ways first we need to look at measurements with respect to ourselves which means we need to collect a baseline or a series of recordings so that the effect of different stressors is always evaluated with respect to what are our normal values without looking much at other people or the general population. Secondly, we also need to control for as many of the previous factors as we can and then evaluate the effect of what we care about. For example, in the context of optimizing performance, apps like HRV for training provide a set of simple rules so that the measurements you take at home is as close as possible to supervised laboratory recordings and your data is more reliable. So here are a few rules that are very important to follow every time you measure your HRV. Try to take the measurement first thing after waking up while still in bed. This way you have consistent time of the day and you're not affected by other stressors. The only exception here is if you need to empty the bladder. In that case, do it, then go back, rest one or two minutes to make sure your body is not affected by physical activity, and then take the measurement. On measurement duration, well, short measurements have been validated multiple times, so you can trust 60-second recordings. Breathing, very important. It doesn't really matter what breathing frequency you pick, but try to be consistent. Use the same breathing pattern every time, which is typically shown by many apps so that you keep this component consistent. And finally, body position, so lying, sitting or standing, all good. Again, what matters is that you do always the same and if you decide to stand it's important that you are patient and wait a minute or two before recording since your body otherwise will be affected by physical activity. Once you follow these steps, if you perform regularly sports at good intensity, you'll see that your day-to-day -day changes in HRV, what we call acute HRV changes, will be mainly driven by the intensity of your trainings since you control your measurements for many other factors and you'll be able to better understand how your training program is affecting your physiology and recovery. So what you expect in this case is reductions in HRV on days following more intense trainings. So this is all for this episode. In the next episode of this series we will be looking at HRV interpretations beyond what we discussed today such as more exploratory analysis of long-term trends which is an area of research which is still very active today. Thanks, Rob, again, and talk to you in about a week. So massive thanks to Marco for providing us with some great information regarding heart rate variability. So the technology segment has got some really good uh, feedback so far, so it's something I'll be continuing. So if you did want to push any feedback um, my way, that would be great. Anything you want to see um, more information on and a little bit of technology that you're, that you're interested in. So massive thanks to Train With Push today for sponsoring the technology segment. So as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, still using the push band, still think it's such a great tool to use uh, for your own training and your athletes. So there's been a few changes uh, on, the, on the app itself, um, just a few little tweaks. And I know that the guys behind the scenes are working really hard to, to improve things even more. So with so much information around regarding velocity-based training, I'd definitely encourage you to get over to trainwithpush.com. They've got a really good blog. Uh, it's been going quite a while now. So there's contributions from Milan Ivanovic, uh, Brian Mann, various different people, as well as Matt Kuzdub, who's their, their sports scientist, uh, who I had on the show quite a few months ago. So get over there. I'd really encourage you to get a push band, whether it's just for your own training um, or, or the athletes that you're working with. If you're in the UK, you can get to strengthandconditioningeducation.com forward slash push and you can you can get a push band for yourself there so thanks again for tuning in to episode 55 of the podcast over to jonas i know you'll enjoy the episode but again would appreciate any feedback you've got and i will speak to you soon okay hi guys welcome to the pace of performance podcast so today i've got jonas Doddu on the phone so we had jonas on a couple of months ago but then we've been trying to redo it because we thought um, we could add a little bit more, add a little bit more content into the uh, into the podcast. So it's great to get him on. 
I know he's out of the house um, escaping a baby crying, so we're not going to keep him in his car for too long. Um, but uh, thanks for making time for us, Jonas. Really looking forward to the chat. Um, so just want to give us a, a bit of an introduction on yourself, um, your education, and what you're currently doing. Um, a bit about myself. Well, I am um, a South Londoner, I'm born and bred. Um, my parents are from Ghana and, and uh, they came over a few years before I was born. I went to school in South London and, and when I got to school, I got exposed to, to secondary school, I got exposed to rugby. I first turned up and thought, no, I'm not playing this posh boy sport. And within a couple of weeks, I realised actually I love the sport. I love running and running and jumping and, and hitting people. And um, and actually it was, it was a really good exposure to something very new. Um, in school, I played loads of different sports, rugby, basketball, a bit of football, um, some athletics and um, and work, play for Roslyn Park and, and Surrey and had England trials and stuff like that. But, you know, I was always injured and I got to university. I went to Hartbury College and, and did my degree and my master's there. But literally within my first year there, I was so injured that I just stopped playing rugby. But um, continued training and lifting and sprinting with the team. And, and actually by my second year, I realised that actually I could, you know, get my thoughts across to some of the players about how they should perhaps train and coach the, the women's team during my last year and my masters and um, coach some of the Gloucester Academy boys in the off season and um, and actually found that I really liked coaching. Um, so when I started my masters, which is in coaching science, I um, thought actually I want to know more about rugby, speed, power training, and and maybe train maybe learn how to train people differently to how I had been coached because I, I I personally believe that some of my injury history was based on on just poor training programs or progressions um and lack of understanding of how to really rehab and look after my body um so <clears throat> during my master's um on, in in uh, my master's was based on elite processes um expertise and and how we can go from novice to elite uh, in a short period of time um, and I was focused at my primary focus was rugby and rugby coaching so I, I looked through all the rugby literature and went back and back and back and kind of find myself in the early 80s and, and anything before that the rugby uh, literature was quoting athletics coaches um, and that was quite interesting I was like okay well where, where everything everything seemed to go back to Vrokashansky and Matt Viev and um, and Bondichark and all of these guys. And, and so I started reading more about athletics coaches and found myself to um, the Canadian Athletics Coaching website um, that was run at the time by Derek Evely and Kevin Tyler. And that was a great resource because you, I was stuck on that website for months, just re trying to read everything and anything on on periodization, on, on acceleration, on power, on speed. Um, and then I had questions. So I started emailing Derek again and again and again and it got to a point that he probably just got really annoyed with me and said look mate just call me so then we had phone calls and I you know he had they had a lot of literature on Dan Path so I was just trying to quiz them and find out more and, and they said okay actually why don't you talk to Dan um so I started quizzing Dan again and again and and, and he said okay mate you might as well just call me <laughs> <laughs> so so I, so I called him and asked him more and more questions and by the by the time I had got enough base understanding I realized that actually if I'm going to do this thesis any justice I probably need to be out there and spend some time with him um so at the same time Derek had introduced me to Jim Dennison who was the the head of the, the PhD and the, the master's program in the University of Edmonton um and he invited me over because there was an opportunity to do a PhD in in speed and power and and uh and coaching philosophy so I, I visited Edmonton, I visited Kevin and Derek out in, in Canada, um, one of the coldest places I've been, <laughs> um, and then uh, met with Jim and then went to Dan and spent a couple months in San Diego with him there um, and followed him around and watched everything he did, recorded everything he did and wrote down everything he did. Um, and, and basically the, the end product of my, my thesis was uh, heuristics of, elite, of expertise in athletics coaching. And I tried to I tried to reverse engineer everything that Dan done, um, and try to find his his heuristics, his key tenets, his rules of thumb for all the decisions he made um, in coaching. Um, and that was great. And I came home and 
wrote it up and finished my master's and then kind of thought about if I was going to go to Edmonton to do this PhD and and I thought it would have been great it would be great to finish and be Dr. Dodu and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know it, it would be a great title to have and it would have just been me continuing the the master's thesis that I started but I had a bit of a moral dilemma because I thought it would have been really difficult to you know four or five years later to have a PhD in, in athletics coaching and elite coaching um, and and essentially tell people I I am a doctor in this event. I am an expert in how to coach elite athletes if I hadn't actually done it myself. Um, that was a massive moral dilemma I had. Um, and so I decided that actually I wasn't going to go over there. I was going to stay home and there was no opportunities to coach in a paid role, but I was just going to find a way to just stay and coach and, and practice everything I'd learned over the prior years. Um, so I stayed home and coached kids and coached broken athletes and old athletes and um, just started to just learn and apply things. But um, I was quite lucky a year and a half later, you know, Kevin was employed by UK Athletics to come over on the, on the road to Rio. Um, uh, sorry, on the, on the road to London Olympics. Um, then Derek was employed and then Dan Path was employed. So all the people that I had traveled across, the, you know, to the other side of the world, essentially to to go and learn from were now all within a couple hours drive. Um, and then within six months of Dan's employment, they advertised for apprentice roles um, based in London and Loughborough. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough to get one of those roles under Dan Path. So it was my dream come true. I, I had three years of learning under Dan, watching him, coaching my athletes alongside him, um, practicing, making mistakes. Um, and... Uh, got exposed to really good practice and and got to take athletes to world juniors and to the Olympics and got a Paralympic medal and lived with Stu McMillan and, and got to learn all about him and his philosophy and um, and then found myself in 20, 2012 where my contract had run out and didn't really have another job to roll into and uh, started Speedworks. And essentially Speedworks is a, a consultancy company that we, we, you know, we work with team sports, rugby, football, um, pro amateur, um, as long alongside I, I run a uh, uh, elite and emerging elite track and field group based out of North London, um, and we have you know a team of ten staff of, of coaches and therapists and interns, and we currently have thirty track and field athletes based at, at, out of London who all have aspirations to to be the best they can be over the next you know three to six year journey, and um, and that's kind of where we're at at the moment. So, so who's in the group that you're uh, currently working with? The, so the at, track at and field moment, group. Um, you know, we we had Greg Rutherford, who who is currently the the fifth person, fifth British person to to do the Grand Slam, win Olympic, uh, Commonwealth, European, and and Worlds recently in in China, all within three years. So, Greg is is probably our flagship. Um, who you know, Dan Dan Path coached him up to the Olympics. I I, I almost took over from the past couple of years and. Um, and and we still have Dan as as a, a major influence, and 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 Dan really did most of the work in the last six weeks, big build up to China. Um, so Greg is a, is a you know is our is our talisman. Um, Chichindu Uja, uh, the recent guy to go sub ten last year and this year, um, and a, a major prospect for um, medals and finals over the next couple of years, um, and in a number of really good developing athletes who you know four or five of them have run 10 1 10 2 um are all very young um and have major aspirations as well um alongside that you know boys and girls of, of from different nations uh paralympic olympic um and uh mostly hi mate sorry i lost you there no sorry mate no worries um so I was actually speaking to Ian McKeown, who was at Port Adelaide this morning, and he was saying that he's going down to the World Athletic Centre. So obviously yeah. people people are still tapping into Dan, just like you did, you know, them years ago. Okay. So how how important has Dan been in your in your development as a mentor? Um, Dan, you know, I would say that eighty five percent of my philosophy and my almost even how I design some of my microcycles and my training components have come from Dan. 
um, during my apprenticeship, I had the opportunity to be on the UK Sport ECAP program, which essentially fast tracked the the, Af- the coaches working in different sports. And part of that gave me a budget to go and spend on anything I thought was important for my development. And this was maybe two or three years into my time under Dan, and and it's quite clear that there are major, there's a, a large amount of successful coaches working in elite sport at the moment who have spent time with Dan over the past 30 years. Um, many of them are in the NCAA system, coaching in the best universities in the state. So I, I figured, actually, I, I think I know what I need to know, at least at the moment, about Dan Path and his philosophy. But it would be really interesting to spend some time with other coaches who had also gone through that journey, um, but perhaps were a 10, 15, 20 years ahead of me. Um, my, you know, if you look on the outside of a two pound coin, it says standing on the shoulders of giants. And, and that's a, a, a fundamental part of my philosophy. And I thought, okay, well, why don't I go and spend some time with these other coaches that had been through a similar journey to me, but had had success far beyond me and that had different perspectives. So um, I flew over with, with a colleague of mine and a mentor, Dan, um, Mike Raffalaka, and we flew over to Florida and we spent time with Lance Brownman and, and Mouse Holloway, who are you know successful coaches. You know, Lance coached Tyson Gay and Campbell Brown, a number, of, a number of other individuals, and Mouse Holloway is at University of Florida. And we we basically drove from Florida to Louisiana. We spent time with Bruce Schicksnyder and Dennis Shaver. We, we kept on driving. Um, we spent time with um, with Andreas Bayem and um, oh, I'm forgetting names at, at the moment. And and the guys at University of Texas um, and basically spent time with six or seven coaches who had learnt or worked with Dan Path at, at a certain point in their life. Um, and some were real big proponents of Dan and some actually were almost had philosophies that were counter to Dan's. Um, and that's, that's a great perspective to have. People that had learnt from him had openly applied bits or who openly said, actually, we don't really believe in that. Um, and it's not just one thing talking to them. It's another thing actually looking at their programs, looking at their training components, how do they apply it throughout the year. Um, and some still had the same circuits named the same as Dan uses in his in his components. So it's, it's, again, great to see them using the same things that Dan was using, but maybe with a different flavor, maybe in a different order, maybe with a different justification. Um, so, you know, Dan, Dan is, is the ultimate coach educator um, who is also still getting high performance um, results. Um, so, yeah, without a doubt, he's, he's had a major effect on my philosophy and, and a number of other philosophies. Something he said to me um, during 2012, he said, okay, he's been employed by UKA to come over and educate the coaches, but he didn't believe his effect would be at 2012. His true belief was that actually the three years he had spent educating and sharing would probably have a, a more lasting effect uh, in over the, the years after 2012 and, and actually right now that's that's very clear you have elite coaches young coaches coming through like myself Steve Farge um, you, you've got uh, Dan Cousins over in Bath you've got a number of coaches coming through who actually three or four years ago were junior coaches um, but were, were listening learning from Dan and Kevin and Derek and others um, and have, are now starting to establish their philosophy and, and, and that's also having uh, um, being coming out as elite results mm, cool so i just want to move on to a couple of things we discussed beforehand um the kind of the nuts and bolts of the, the conversation really um about action typing mm-hmm. so you just want to talk to us about what you mean by that and how you the kind of different proponents of that that you're looking at with your athletes to to gauge what kind of athlete they are and what areas you're going to uh, work on during that program. Okay, I use the term action typing loosely. So there, there is a, there are two guys that come out of Europe who are who have a, a business called Action Types, and they are they apply phys- physical testing to create psychological profiles based on Myers Briggs, um, and a phys- physiological testing or physical testing essentially um, starts to put people in in categories of of if they're front or back dominant if they're high or low frequency now you you need to talk to those guys to get the, the nuts and bolts of that because i 
even though I've been trying to use it and talk to them over the past four years, I still feel like I only understand 25% of it. But clearly, as coaches, anyone in, in any experienced coach can clearly look at their, their group of athletes they have now over their career and start to put them in some category, some kind of category. And that's all, all that I really wanted to, to be clear with when I, when I talked to the action types. The psychological stuff is interesting, but I just don't understand it enough for me to talk to you now about it. Um, even if I'm applying it in my in my own in my own coaching, but essentially we all see pushers versus pullers. We all see quad dominant versus versus hamstring or posterior type dominant athletes. We all see uh, concentric versus elastic type guys. Guys that like to spend time on the ground. That's how they produce their force. Guys who actually are very frequency based and like to move very very quickly. Um, we all see you know um, guys that are uh, again are more stride length dominant or maybe stride frequency dominant um, and this manifests itself as a result of people's nervous systems their training history um, it, it might manifest itself in terms of what um, how 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 much tendon they have compared to muscle mass in a certain muscle so hamstring how long is it the tendon or you look at someone's calf with a really high calf with a really long tendon they, they look more like a greyhound um, or you see it look like look at someone with a really long calf and a short tendon, and they're probably a bit more endurance based, a bit more concentric in their action. So we're, we're all seeing that, and the more I talk to coaches, they've all got their own terminology. You, you, you talk to Steve, um, you talk to uh, Stu McMillan, and there's a term he uses, pushers versus pullers, and and James Wilde has been using that a lot in his research, um, and and we all we're all seeing that, but not a lot of people are figuring out. Okay, well. Some of these guys, if they're pushers versus pullers or if they're concentric more than elastic, some of these guys have um, uh, are more likely to get specific injuries, um, are more likely to respond to certain types of stimuli, to certain length of cycle, are more likely to respond to certain cues more than others. Um, some of these guys look at the world in a different way to others. So, so it's important for us as coaches to start to compile this information on, our, on the different types and, and find a way to quantitatively assess this um, with, you know, be it force profiling, be it movement analysis, be it speed profiling. Um, so that, that's kind of where I, I'm going with that is, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at our athletes, their skill sets, how they apply force, um, where they're likely to break down in terms of injury. Um, and we're trying to prescribe interventions, um, cues, uh, exercise, exercises that are specific to their needs and try to almost cut out the faff and um, cut out the stuff that doesn't really matter or has less uh, influence on performance and health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of times there, uh, pushers versus pullers. How so? When you've defined that, and you've got two different athletes in obviously in, in two different groups, how different are their programs? Is it is it very fine tweaks, or is it kind of radical changes? I think it's fine tweaks. Mm-hmm. I, I think you know. Let me go back one step. I think we can all do both. Of course, we can all push and all pull. That's not. That's the point. Isn't um, what someone can do or can't do. It's 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 actually what are they almost designed to do what is the what is the path of least resistance um and as a result what are the likely injuries that are going to happen and what are the likely cues that are going to work i think you you know you look at pushers and and these guys tend to be able to uh regardless of the speed be able to move a lot of force or produce a lot of force and move a lot of weight um uh, tend to want to reach out a bit more in front and spend a bit more time on the ground so we know what their strengths are and, and a big part of my philosophy is keep their strengths strong. So if I know that someone first to spend more time on the ground, um, perhaps has more muscle mass or at least has a longer, uh, uh, has a bigger proportion of muscle versus tendon, um, I kind of know, okay, where should my SNC program go with that and, and where should uh, the the priority in that program go again i run a concurrent program so we're doing everything we're doing everything throughout the year there's a vertical integration of of all of our components but perhaps my um concentrated load um in the work that i'm doing is is more towards that person's strength um 
versus their weakness. And, and I think in your GPP, in your win tie, in your off-season, you work on someone's weaknesses. And as you get closer to when they need to perform at their best, you work on their strengths. So essentially, I, I think we, we maybe were designing or maybe I'm suggesting a, a model that flips around depending on someone's strengths. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I've just written down here um, the assessment of those physical qualities. And so do you want to just talk to us about the kind of difference between actual physical assessments and actually eyeballing these guys and how you kind of merge the two? Okay. So I think, so if you want to talk more about false profiling um, and using sports science to identify people's strengths and weaknesses, I think you talk to someone who's actually using force plates and using force transducers and uh, or linear transducers and 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 actually has is creating a lot of data with those kind of things. I talked to Brad Deweese yesterday and he they seem to have a real um, concise and and um and practical approach to collecting data on a regular basis and and that's really because they've got force plates and all of their squat racks and um and they're, and they're working really athletes across different sports. Um, Michael Johnston is doing a similar thing over here in, in Great Britain, and, and there are a number of coaches doing that kind of thing. For myself, I'm real practical. I have too many athletes and don't actually have the budget to have all that stuff. So most of our profiling happens in um, with coaching eye and happens where, where we can create uh, collect numbers. It's more to do with how people um, perform in standing long jump, standing triple jump, how people perform what we do have is a jump mat so how people perform in a variety of drop jumps from a variety of heights um with uh with a constant with a with a focus more on short versus long contact times and we like to see the difference um when when we give them a, a, a cue towards spending no time on the ground and i'm really looking at reactive index what kind of what kind of performance they produce when i give them an open field and say do what you need to do to get as high as you get Okay, what kind of performance do they perform? Um, and, and then we start to weigh the difference between the two. Um, but more specifically, it's actually looking at the numbers they produce on the way to a 40, 50, 60 meter, depending on the athlete. Um, looking at the, the difference in the ratio between the, the 10, 20, 30 and 40 and see if, okay, what well, are there guys that, are these guys that would rather um, produce, uh, oh, no, sorry, are these guys that their performance performances are more likely to produce faster 10s and 20s and then they stabilize at a speed and just hold the speed or are these guys that keep getting faster um, are these guys when we run through up to jump um, that have relatively longer stride lengths um, and the the increase or the rate of decrease of contact time again bottoms out early doors and they just stay at a, a relatively slow contact time but they just keep growing their stride length or are these guys that stride frequency and contact time continue or contact time continues to decrease and frequency continues to increase throughout the run this this tells us something about the individual and how they produce force so you, you mentioned there that the the kind of standing triple jump standing long jump mm-hmm. do you use do you use them as as a kind of gauge to kind of acutely um change your program um Yes, again, so I, I think we use them as a gauge to acutely change the program, but per- perhaps perhaps not in the early doors. I think perhaps in the early doors we're just using them as as uh, as monitoring tools as well as, you know, the first the first six weeks of learning, standing long jump, standing triple jump, um, bounds for distance, hops, um, are really it's learning. So we can't really take those numbers and, and, and almost make a decision based on those numbers because they're still learning and it's that learning effect. But after that point, you know, once I've had regular exposure to those movements, yeah, we start to see who who is making bigger progress in those movements. What program are they having separate to that um, versus who who's struggling with those movements? And 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 we again, we have to use use our common sense and say, okay, well, are they struggling because of the program they're doing alongside it? Is is the weights and and the other bits of the comp program? complementary to to this and do we expect it to get better or or actually are are the other bits of the program not complementary and we're still in some kind of capacity phase so we don't really expect it so that's why in a program there's quite an undulation between extensification intensification and i allow you know every every three to six weeks i'm going to allow the guys to to drop a bit of it um of volume in in the other components and allow themselves to to almost have some kind of overreach and um 
and see where they're at in those movements without being dampened by fatigue. Cool. Just to take it back a step, um, you mentioned vertical integration. Mm-hmm. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that? <laughs> and it's funny because um, terminology and um, semantics is, is hilarious. You talk to Americans and you talk to European guys and everyone talks quite differently. Vertical integration, concurrent training, conjugate training to me are all the same thing. Um, in fact, if I was to describe my training, I reckon I've got some kind of vertical integration with undulation with 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 some kind of blocks uh, system going going throughout it and i'm trying to have some kind of phase potentiation um cycle to cycle or, or block to block so i think you know we we sit down and we read the old science or we read the old papers and we we think that we can sit in in one in one uh, school of periodization but i think essentially uh, year on year my guys i'm having to find more ways to create variation so that I can actually have some kind of stimulation to their systems. So year on year or the more advanced my guys get, the more I'm trying to play around with, with the different things. But back to vertical integration, my thoughts are that acceleration is a skill and a skill we have to practice from the beginning. I think acceleration is king and I think we have to always be um, practicing what our end result is. So if you're a rugby player, if you're football, if you're if you're, I don't know, uh, a court sport, if you're athletics, I think we should be practicing and playing around with some kind of acceleration from the beginning. That means we're playing around with some kind of power, some kind of rate of force development um, from the beginning. Um, but I think the old rules apply. I think we need to start in a place where developing capacity is key um, and and gradually move from capacity towards intensity um and specificity so that gradual move um from capacity to intensity um or from extensification to intensification or from gpp to spp to comp that gradual move is 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 basically a gradual move from in your first phases where acceleration is in the program as well as capacity and maybe general means of training um moves from acceleration maybe being a tertiary uh, goal with with capacity being your primary goal or your, or your concentrated load towards almost it all flipping around where acceleration and speed is become your concentrated load and, and general specific capacity being perhaps secondary and tertiary to that. Mm-hmm. Does so, that make sense? Yeah, it does, mate. Yeah, yeah. So just one, one thing I want to touch. Vertical, sorry, sorry. On, sorry. That no, vertical integration phrase or terminology is, is a Charlie Francis terminology. Um, and you look at concurrent and conjugate models that, you know, you, you can see throughout different um, uh, periodization gurus and, um, phys- uh, and uh, theorists. But essentially, we're talking about working all components at all times throughout the year. But some components taking a back step to others depending on your phase okay so we mentioned you mentioned derek at the uh at the start yeah. of the chat and obviously he, he came on the podcast a couple of episodes ago yeah and obviously he talked he talked uh extensively about the bond truck methodology uh-huh. have you have you taken anything from that um have you integrated that into some of your your stuff yeah i think um I think the bondage cut, what I take from bondage is essentially is a few things actually that transfer of training is critical. And I think when you, when you look at bondage um, classification of exercises, um, I think that's the first place any, any developing coach should start because you start to see what is re- really the event and what is really going to have transfer and what you should really be measuring for transfer. Um, and then what is complementary to that, um, and and then starting to figure out for your level of athlete what proportion of each of your training cycles should perhaps um, prioritize on on those other components. That's the first thing I take from it. Second thing I take from it is that um, variation is necessary for to change stimuli. However, sometimes we get addicted to stimulate and adapt, stimulate adapt but we forget to stabilize and actualize a skill set. And, and that's what I learned from Dan Path as well. We, we get stuck in the stimulation, adapt, stimulation, adapt, and we never really wait for the body to get used to it so that it can overperform at a certain component. Um, so 
where I apply that really is in my competition phase and perhaps in my pre-comp phase, where most of my components become quite stable. My my especially my my special developmental components and my special prep type components, my plyometrics, my explosive strength in the gym, and definitely my max strength become quite stable. Um, the volumes and sets, the exercise suggestions, uh, selection comes becomes quite stable. And what I start to vary far no, and what I start to play around with, and and what I start to care more about um, is performances and races and performances in in speed and speed endurance sessions. Um, in training um so my competition phases you know my programs sometimes go from six all the way to 12 weeks long um and people say okay well don't they get stagnant and 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 then then you know how you how i prevent stagnation is uh, making sure i stay on top of well how i prevent regression in energy systems is making sure i have a a maintenance load of 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 everything at some point with with different kind of densities and and how i prevent stagnation is isn't almost in the same same way I, I make sure that there's a variation of my competition event and make sure that i um play around of densities but of 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 uh of activation of those systems and also resting of those systems mm. so that brings up onto the uh, the next point quite nicely um about about transfer of training that we, we speak spoke about previously and creating that transfer between um, the strength that's been built to actually speed on the track or speed on the field or speed in the car, whatever it may be. Uh, I know we, we did speak about that um, with Derek quite extensively, obviously with the Bondachuk link. So you yeah. just want to give your take on how we're making that transition and getting that transfer. Um, well, it's a bit of a loaded question sometimes because, you know, I, I think as long as if you need to run fast, as long as you're running fast, it's going to transfer. Um, if you need to change direction, as long as you change direction, it's transfer. I think what, what needs to happen is, is an understanding of almost primary, secondary and tertiary type transfer exercises. Um, and I think for a developing athlete who is weak as piss and not fit, just getting them fit and getting them a bit stronger makes them better at their event. Um, and, uh, more, the closer you get to uh, filling up those capacities, the less they transfer. Um, and then you start to, and, and maybe that's just your tertiary transfer. Maybe just getting them fit is all you need to do to get them to be better at their event. Now, once they're fit and they're generally strong, it's okay, well, it's not just maximum strength or capacity we need. It needs to be a bit more specific. It needs to be a bit more explosive. So getting them to be explosive in, in, um, in general movements, in you know, squat jump cleans, um, standing long jump, box jumps repeated hurdle jumps okay then we're going to have a bit more of a transfer to the event because it's not just about producing force anymore it's can they produce force within a a specific time period um and then once you've got that you know the question is okay well do they know how to produce force in a specific time period in the right direction um can they produce and then for and that and that's essentially athletics that's essentially linear sports um, and then when you where you go in team sports is okay. Can they f- produce force in the right time frame in the right direction um, at the right time? Uh, can they make the right decision? Can they can they produce the force? Uh, can they can they make this decision um, in a varied environment with with a variety of decisions at at disposal? Um, that that for me is where team sports have that last that last piece of transfer. And, and I and I sincerely believe it's in that order. Um, and again, I'm, I'm doing everything concurrently. It's not that I wait for someone to be able to squat two times their body weight before I start plyometrics. And it's not that I wait for them to stand in long jump three meters 30 and, and do three bunnies over 11 meters before I decide that I'm going to start some speed or, and it's not that they have to run a, you know, a, a sub four second, uh, 30 meters or anything like that before I decide that they, they can do change of direction. It's everything has happened at the same time. But year on year, as people move towards being elites, the proportion of how much time is spent is is what changes. So, in team sport, obviously in athletics, if you're measuring the the success of your program, if the guy runs quick, uh, that's quite an easy way to measure it. Yeah. Um, how how is that obviously differs because there's so much more involved so many more variables involved in a say a rugby setting so how are you how are you measuring your impact as a coach 
in in a team team setting compared to track and field. Hi Jonas, sorry it cut off there as soon as you started that question. So obviously in athletics and track and field, it's it's reasonably easy to to measure the oh, impact okay. of I, your program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the measure the measurement in track is linear, um, and so how do we measure in in team sports? I think exactly. especially for developing athletes, it is still linear. Um, and I think the measurement of your your SSC program um, is is essentially going to be on your speed profile. Uh, JB's research, and I spoke to him a few weeks ago. It, you know, he he is stating clearly that for elite and for developed athletes, there isn't a direct um, correlation between the jump force profiling and speed profiling. Um, so I think the the ultimate measure of um, of your strength program, um, especially in speed power sports, is going to be how fast they run. Now, I think um, a measurement of coaching. Um, towards your event so if you're uh, measuring the, the athlete's ability to play football okay yes you can um, put in some change of direction type stuff but essentially it goes back to what I was talking about before where it's more about them making the right decision um, rather than just ability to do a t-drill for example um, so when I go into when I'm when I'm a consultant I'm I it depends what hat I'm wearing and what I what my my remit is from the guys that are bringing me in um with Theo Walcott the goal was he was coming from rehab and he was going back into walk um, back into on feet type training so the goal was to get him back to speed um to develop lower leg con um, conditioning uh, and and stiffness and in, in, and return his um the the rehab leg back to the same kind of level that it was prior so he came back faster than he was prior um, I then think it depends on what hat I wear. If I'm kept in um, or if the desire is for me to then do more specific stuff to do with the event, then you have to bring in um, change of direction, acceleration, speed in an environment where the athlete is being forced to recognize cues from his opponent um, or even from his uh, teammates and execute the right task then. But it all depends on what hat you wear. If you're on a football team or if you're in a, in a team sport where you as SNC coach, pure goal is to get your guys strong, fit and explosive and have the ability to change direction, then I think your measurement of success of your program is going to be the numbers you get from your timing gates, the numbers you get from your jumping um, and from any other kind of where you monitor strength and power and change of direction. Um, and single leg stiffness and all those other bits and pieces. Um, but the closer you get into the coaching team, then then it becomes the ability for the athlete to execute the task when it really matters um, and execute the right task. And that's where you get into, um, into actually probably not even using numbers as much and, and more making sure they're executing the right task at speed. Um, and I know some people may have um, may use may use cameras um, and count uh, and, uh, and measure contact time and the time it takes for an athlete to stop, do a decelerate. Seem to be creating their own um, methods of measuring this, but that's not where my skill set lies. Uh, my skill set lies in in getting people faster, stronger, giving them the ability to be more elastic. Um, giving them the ability to decelerate better, to accelerate better, to orientate their body and rotate and change direction, you know, 45 degrees, 180 degrees, um, or to a sudden stop. Um, however, that's when it stops. That's where my, my job stops. And then the coach's job um, takes over. Mm -hmm. So you spoke a little bit about um, monitoring change direction and, and the obviously importance of uh, reacting to a cue that's specific to the sport. Yes. How are you? How are you combining them two into something that can actually be measured? Uh, that's my point. Is that at the moment I'm not. Um, okay. All right. At the moment, I know Dan Howes is um, is is really hot on this at the moment. So we're, what we're really trying to do is make sure that the teaching of it happens. Um, but I think uh, I feel that that's a, a difficult thing to measure, um, and I'm yet to know of how people are doing it. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
So again, you mentioned there about um, some of the consulting that you're doing with with various different teams. Just and you've obviously got a and just to um, come back to something we spoke about at the start, your, your workshop that you've got coming up. So you've got you've got the workshop coming up in start of November. You just want to talk yeah. a little little bit about that and a little bit about the consulting that you're doing at the minute. Um, okay, so um, I run Speedworks, and that's that's my primary primary. Um, focus um on my athletes there but i do some consultancy work with the rfu of the england uh, sevens men and women's program um and uh work with, with luke and kate of the women's and, and dan house with the men's um and those those guys are really switched on um sometimes i feel like i'm just there to teach them to suck eggs because they know what they're doing um but um it's great to to combine my my recognition of linear speed and power and progressions and cues um, and and bond with the team and and talk to the the coaches um, not just the SSC coaches but the lead coaches about what they want for their players at this specific time um, and so at our workshop we've got um, stuff and then further to that I work at Bath Rugby um, and I've been there for the past three years and and again it's the same same scenario. Um, it's just we've had I've had obviously had more time over the past three years to really underpin um, to really teach the underpinnings of, of my philosophy and and the, and the coaches there have taken bits on and, and I'm only up there once every two weeks but they carry on with bits and pieces um, and I get a bit more specific goals because I work with a rehab team and, and all of those kind of bits and pieces um, so our workshop um, is focused and kind of built around team sports conditioners um and it's a combination of myself and ben rosenblatt who um who perhaps is the guy you need to talk to about measuring change of direction yeah and, definitely and how he monitors that um because i think that's that's definitely his skill set um and and he's gone over a really interesting journey over the past four years with those girls because you know essentially um he started by just wanting to get them faster um, and realized that they kept on breaking down. So he had to realize, okay, I've got to get these general components really, really um, on point so that they don't break down from the speed and then they got faster. And then, but if their speed wasn't necessarily transferring into the event, they were running faster through the gates, but they weren't actually running necessarily faster during the game. Then he realized, okay, he had to start to manipulate some of his speed sessions and his progressions into his speed or out of his speed into bits that forced them to start to make decisions. Um, and that's, that's where the interesting work is done. Um, and that's where my interest lies is, is, um, and, and, you know, essentially you can make someone faster, um, but it's then making sure they understand and recognize and create habits and reflexes to apply that speed and those new movement patterns and those new timings into their environment. Um, and that, and that's kind of why I haven't really focused on how I'm measuring, um, just the change of direction speed in the event because essentially as long as they're making good decisions very quickly then i know that and and in using the technical model that we've learned prior to that phase then I, then essentially my job is done um and that looks and sounds different in hockey in in rugby sevens in rugby 15s in in football um so the workshop is all about sharing some of those those ideas, sharing some of the science that underpins it, sharing some of the, um, the the research that is perhaps more based on coaching philosophies and and applied coaching programs as opposed to just the theory and science. Um, and then the re the workshop is very very practically based, where we'll talk about some prepared to train and um, and and apply some of the bits because I think as coaches, you know, we learn best through doing. Um, and I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to sit down and, and just and talk theory with you. So that's the workshop. That's on November the seventh. Um, that's going to be really fun. I'm really looking forward to it. It's the first. It's the first one we're doing, and and we have a few more planned um, that are a bit more towards uh, therapy and health, but with with a practical element again, and with performance at mind. Um, and then second to that, we um, myself and Paul Bryce have been working with different team sports and and giving them an opportunity to wear. So we, we go into team sports with our first hat and our first hat is basically, here's a profile of jumps, here's a profile of speed, here's where we think what kind of type your athlete is and here's a kind of thing we would do with this individual. Um, people tend to, to bring two or three of their um, case studies along and, you know, it, 
typically is the guys that aren't making the progress that they expect to make or it's the guys that keep breaking down. And we like to give an, some understanding of um, why this person seems to be having multiple hamstring injuries, why this person isn't transferring the, all this big strength that you've developed away from her into sprinting, Where what are the key technical things we're seeing in the video, what are the key things the numbers are saying from from our analysis, um, and then we give the teams, the, the SSC coaches, the data and say, okay, go go away and work with it. We'll come back in six weeks or we'll come back in 12 weeks. Um, so that's that's something we're also offering and, and uh, that's what I want to share with you guys as well. So we've now got to a point where we've kind of got our processes down to a T and um, we're really open to, to, to people approaching and asking for some help. Cool. So where can people get in touch with you? For, for both the workshop and the um, the bespoke programming stuff? Um, so both both ways is, is through email, info at wearespeedworks.com. Um, you know, my, my Twitter, eatsleeptrain underscore. My website is uh, wearespeedworks.com. Um, and, you know, send us an email, send me a tweet. You know, these days people tweet, in, you know, direct message me just as much as they email me. Um my wife is is the person who will probably pick up the email and, and she'll be really concise and get back to you really soon. Um, and I'm usually the person on Twitter. <laughs> so does your wife do your, uh, do your kind of admin and stuff like that? Yeah, so my is wife... Is she a full-time um, employee? <laughs> she is, no. So she's, she's a full-time mum and a part-time employee with me one day a week and she works for England Athletics in their coach education. Um, she's a, a lead mentor for jumps and combined events. Um, so... Yeah, she's she's she was an Olympic athlete. She went to Beijing and in the heptathlon, and and then she was also apprentice coach on the Dan Path. So we spent three years with each other up until 2012, and and then uh, she manipulated me into getting married and having a baby. <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. No, no. no. Um, okay, cool. No, that's great. So I'll um, I'll put all the links that you've mentioned um, on the on the website. So what yeah. you mentioned right at the start, I've got it down in in capitals. Um, the book with James Wilde. I can't forget to mention that. Tell them, yes, tell them about exactly. That. I would get in trouble from not mentioning that. Yeah. Um, so uh-huh. James, James Wilde, you know, James is great to speak to because um, he's doing his, his PhD in, um, in acceleration. And, um, and actually John, John Goodwin is also doing his PhD in, in max velocity sprinting. And, and I, I love to spend time and talk to guys that are deeper in the science than I am. Um, and some of it is just because maybe sometimes every three to six weeks, I think I'm a fraud and I just need to talk to these guys and just make sure I'm on the right path. Um, so yeah, James and I have been working with um, Olivia Breen, my Paralympic athlete for the past two or three years, cause she accesses him at Surrey sports park. Um, but also we've been working on, on ideas about acceleration, about transfer, about profiling of different athletes. So, um, you know, James put out a really good book out maybe last year, I think it was. And, and basically the book that we're trying to do is, is maybe a continuation of, of his theory-based book with a few uh, more practical elements to, um, to coaching. Um, so essentially, I, I couldn't bring out a book by myself because, one, I'm dyslexic. Two, uh, it, would, it would take me about 15 years to write and, and just come to a decision about what I want to put down. Um, so James, James and I are going to put something together that's just a bit more practically applied um, compared to his previous book. So, so how far along is that, Jonas? Beginning stages. Okay. But it needs to be done soon. So yeah. we're, we're under the crotch at the moment. Yeah. Cool. Um, and can you remember the title of James's book? I know the front cover. I just can't remember the title. His first book, no. I, that's okay. very bad. I'll get, I'll get a link and I'll stick it, I'll stick but, it online as well. what I would like to say is I read his book and it was quite interesting. I feel like I spent maybe five years trying to read everything and then within that time also trying to talk to all the best coaches that I could find if I was at a competition and I, and I met John Smith or, or I met Bobby Kersey, I would buy him a coffee and sit him down and quiz them until they're annoyed. Um, and I, I, I feel like I spent the beginning parts of my career trying to find common denominators and nuances of different programs and apply it into my philosophy, into my almost my training table. And I was really proud at the end of it. And then James wrote a book and it basically summarizes it all. Um, and so, you know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, it was really difficult to find a lot of the information. But I think with the internet and with science almost justifying and, and solidifying a lot of 
of good coaching practice, it's it's quite easily available. And and, and what James has done is he's compiled that really well into easily easy format to read and understand. Uh, um, so if you haven't read that book, it's it's really good to go and read. And you know, you talk to some people say it's just the basics, but actually, it's the people that do the basics very well and understand the basics really well that actually get the results. Hundred percent, cool. Like I say, I'll uh, I'll I'll remember the uh, the title and put the link online so people can grab it. No problem. So a note to your listeners: sometimes I talk really fast, um, and and I recognise that maybe um, some of it, some of this interview may may have not come through the way people listen or hear. You know, they might struggle to hear what I'm saying. So you know, feel free to send me an email, send me a message, and and I'm happy to kind of elaborate on points. Cool. I've actually thought about doing transcriptions, but nah, I, I, it's too much money. Yeah, <laughs> it's too much yeah. money. So uh, yeah, I, I don't fancy. struggle don't, to transcribe yeah. everything I've said today. Yeah. I don't yeah, fancy sure. typing type out myself. So, yeah, yeah. so yeah, cool. Well, um, thanks for your time, mate. Um, appreciate you coming on again and uh, and and delivering some great info. No worries, buddy. So I'm um, happy to help. Cool. Well, I'll uh, I'll let, I'll let you go. And uh, thanks again for your time. Awesome. All right, pal. Speak to you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 55 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So firstly, a massive thanks to Val Performance, Simply Faster and Train With Push for sponsoring the episode today. Secondly, I want to say you need to get yourself down to Lee Valley on the 7th of November to listen to and get involved with uh, Jonas's workshop. It'll be a great event and I'm definitely going to be there. So, uh, Give me a heads up and say hello. If you do want to check out all previous episodes of the podcast, you can get over to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash podcast. And as I mentioned in the episode with Jonas, all links to what he mentioned in the episode, including how to book on his workshop, are available at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 55. So thanks for tuning in and I will speak to you soon.